Section three of Under the Greenwood Tree. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Under the Greenwood Tree by Thomas Hardy. Part one. Chapter three. The Assembled Choir. William Dewey, otherwise Grandfather William, was now about seventy, yet an ardent vitality still preserved a warm and roughened bloom upon his face, which reminded gardeners of the sunny side of a ripe ribstone pippin. Though a narrow strip of forehead that was protected from the weather by lying above the line of his hat-brim seemed to belong to some town-man, so gentlemanly was its whiteness. His was a humorous and kindly nature, not unmixed with a frequent melancholy, and he had a firm religious faith. But to his neighbours he had no character in particular. If they saw him pass by their windows when they had been bottling off old mead, or when they had just been called long-headed men who might do anything in the world if they chose, they thought concerning him, Ah, there's that good-hearted man, open as a child. If they saw him just after losing a shilling or half a crown, or accidentally letting fall a piece of crockery, they thought, There's that poor weak-headed man Dewey again. Ah, he's never done much in the world either. If he passed when fortune neither smiled nor frowned on them, they merely thought him old William Dewey. Ah, so here you be. Ah, Michael and Joseph and John and you too, Leaf. A merry Christmas all. We shall have a rare logwood fire directly, Rube, to reckon by the toughness of the job I had in cleaving em. As he spoke, he threw down an armful of logs, which fell in the chimney-corner with a rumble, and looked at them with something of the admiring enmity he would have bestowed on living people who had been very obstinate in holding their own. "'Come in, Grandfather James!' Old James, grandfather on the maternal side, had simply called as a visitor. He lived in a cottage by himself, and many people considered him a miser. Some rather slovenly in his habits. He now came forward from behind Grandfather William, and his stooping figure formed a well-illuminated picture as he passed towards the fireplace. Being by trade a mason, he wore a long linen apron, reaching almost to his toes. Corduroy breeches and gaiters, which together with his boots graduated in tints of whitish-brown, by constant friction against lime and stone. He also wore a very stiff, fustian coat, having folds at the elbows and shoulders as unvarying in their arrangement as those in a pair of bellows, the ridges and the projecting parts of the coat collectively exhibiting a shade different from that of the hollows, which were lined with small ditch-like accumulations of stone and mortar-dust. The extremely large side-pockets, sheltered beneath wide flaps, bulged out convexly, whether empty or full, and as he was often engaged to work at buildings far away, his breakfasts and dinners being eaten in a strange chimney-corner, by a garden wall, on a heap of stones, or walking along the road, he carried in these pockets a small tin canister of butter, a small canister of sugar, a small canister of tea, a paper of salt and a paper of pepper, the bread, cheese and meat, forming the substance of his meals, hanging up behind him in his basket among the hammers and chisels. 
if a passer-by looked hard at him when he was drawing forth any of these, "'My buttery!' he said with a pinched smile. "'Better try over number seventy-eight before we start, I suppose?' said William, pointing to a heap of old Christmas carol books on a side-table. "'We all my heart!' said the choir generally. Number 78 was always a teaser, always. I can mind him ever since I was growing up a hard boy chap. But he's a good tune and worth a mint of practice, said Michael. He is, though I've been mad enough with that tune at times to season and tear an all to linnet. I... He's a splendid carol, there's no denying that. The first line is well enough, said Mr. Spinks, but when you come to, oh, thou man, you make a mess o't. We'll have another go into un and see what we can make of the martel. Half an hour's hammering at un will conquer the toughness of un, I'll warn it. Odd rabbit it all said Mr. Penny, interrupting with a flash of his spectacles, and at the same time clawing at something in the depths of a large side-pocket. If so be I hadn't been as scatter-brained and thirtingle as a child, I should have called at the schoolhouse, We a boot as I come up along. Whatever is coming to me, I really can't estimate at all. The brain has its weaknesses murmured Mr. Spinks, waving his head ominously. Mr. Spinks was considered to be a scholar, having once kept a night school, and always spoke up to that level. "'Well, I must call with him the first thing to-morrow, and I'll empt my pocket of this last, too, if you don't mind, Mrs. Dewey.' He drew forth a last, and placed it on the table at his elbow. The eyes of three or four followed it. "'Well,' said the shoemaker, seeming to perceive that the interest the object had excited was greater than he had anticipated, and warranted the lasts being taken up again and exhibited. "'Now, whose foot do ye suppose this last was made for? "'It was made for Geoffrey Day's father over at Yalbury Wood. "'Ah, many's the pair of boots he've had off that last. "'Well,' When I died, I used the last for Geoffrey, and have ever since, though a little doctoring was wanted to make it do. Yes, a very queer-natured last it is now, I believe, he continued, turning it over caressingly. Now, you notice that there, pointing to a lump of leather bradded to the toe, that's a very bad bunion that you've had ever since I was a boy. Now, this remarkable large piece, pointing to a patch nailed to the side, shows a accident he received by the tread of a horse that squashed his foot almost to a pumice. The horseshoe come full butt on this point, you see, and so I've just been over to Geoffrey's to know if he wanted his bunion altered or made bigger in the new pair I'm making. During the latter part of this speech, Mr. Penny's left hand wandered towards the cider cup, as if the hand had no connection with the person speaking, and bringing his sentence to an abrupt close, 
all but the extreme margin of the bootmaker's face was eclipsed by the circular brim of the vessel. However, I was going to say, continued Penny, putting down the cup, I ought to have called at the school. Here he went groping again in the depths of his pocket, to leave this without fail, though I suppose the first thing tomorrow will do. He now drew forth and placed upon the table a boot, small, light, and prettily shaped, upon the heel of which he had been operating. The new schoolmistresses, I no less Miss Fancy Day, as neat a little figure of fun as ever I see, and just husband high. Never Geoffrey's daughter, Fancy, said Bowman, as all glances present converged like wheel spokes upon the boot in the centre of them. Yes, sure, resumed Mr. Penny, regarding the boot as if that alone were his auditor. "'Tis she that's come here, schoolmistress. "'You knowed his daughter was in training. "'Strange, isn't it, for her to be here Christmas night, Master Penny?' "'Yes, but here she is, I believe.' "'I know how she comes here, so I do,' chirruped one of the children. "'Why?' Dick inquired with subtle interest. "'Parson Maybold was afraid he couldn't manage us all to-morrow at the dinner.' "'and he talked o' getting her just to come over and help him hand about the plates "'and see we didn't make pigs of ourselves. "'And that's what she's come for.' "'And that's the boot, then,' continued its mender imaginatively, "'that she'll walk to church in to-morrow morning. "'I don't care to mend boots I don't make, "'but there's no knowing what it may lead to, "'and her father always comes to me.' "'There,' between the cider mug and the candle stood this interesting receptacle of the little unknown's foot and a very pretty boot it was a character in fact the flexible bend at the instep the rounded localities of the small nestling toes scratches from careless scampers now forgotten all as repeated in the tell-tale leather evidencing a nature and a bias dick surveyed it with a delicate feeling that he had no right to do so without having first asked the owner of the foot's permission now neighbours though no common eye can see it the shoemaker went on a man in the trade can see the likeness between this boot and that last, although that is so deformed as hardly to recall one of God's creatures, and this is one of as pretty a pair as you get for ten and sixpence in Casterbridge. To you, nothing. But tis father's foot and daughter's foot to me, as plain as houses. I don't doubt there's a likeness, Master Penny, a mild likeness, a fantastical likeness, said Spinks. "'But I ha'n't got imagination enough to see it, perhaps.' "'Mr. Penny adjusted his spectacles. "'Now I'll tell you what happened to me once on this very point. "'You used to know Johnson, the dairyman, William?' "'Aye, sure I did.' "'Well, t'wasn't opposite his house, but a little lower down, "'by his paddock in front of Park May's pool. 
I was a bearing across towards Bloom End, and lo and behold, there was a man just brought out of the pool, dead. He'd unraid for a dip, but not been able to pitch it just there, had gone in, flop over his head. Men looked at him, women looked at him, children looked at him. Nobody knowed him. He was covered with a sheet, but I catch sight of his foot just showing out as they carried him along. I don't care what name that man went by, I said in my way, but he's John Woodward's brother. I can swear to the family foot. At that very moment, up comes John Woodward, weeping and teeving. I've lost my brother, I've lost my brother. Only to think of that, said Mrs. Dewey. "'Tis well enough to know this foot and that foot,' said Mr. Spinks. "'Tis long-headed, in fact, as far as feet do go. "'I know little, tis true, I say no more. "'But show me a man's foot, and I'll tell you that man's heart.' "'You must be a cleverer fellow there than mankind in general,' said the tranter. "'Well, that's nothing for me to speak of,' returned Mr. Spinks. A man lives and learns. Maybe I've read a leaf or two in my time. I don't wish to say anything large, mind you, but nevertheless, maybe I have. Yes, I know, said Michael soothingly, and all the parish knows that ye've read some of everything almost, and have been a great filler of young folks' brains. Learning's a worthy thing, and ye've got it, Master Spinks. I make no boast, though I may have read and thought a little, and I know, it may be from much perusing, but I make no boast, that by the time a man's head is finished, tis almost time for him to creep underground. I am over forty-five. Mr. Spinks emitted a look to signify that if his head was not finished, nobody's head ever could be. "'Talk of knowing people by their feet,' said Reuben. "'Rot me, my sonnies, then, if I can tell what a man is from all his members put together oftentimes.' "'But still, look is a good deal,' observed Grandfather William absently, moving and balancing his head till the tip of Grandfather James's nose was exactly in a right line with William's eye and the mouth of a miniature cavern he was discerning in the fire. "'By the way,' he continued in a fresher voice and looking up, "'that young crater, the schoolmistress, must be sung to tonight with the rest. "'If her ear is as fine as her face, we shall have enough to do to be upsides with her.' "'What about her face?' said young Dewey. "'Well, as to that,' Mr. Spinks replied, "'tis a face you can hardly gainsay. "'A very good pink face, as far as that do go. "'Still, only a face when all is said and done. "'Come, come, Elias Spinks. "'Say she's a pretty maiden, I've done with her,' said the tranter, "'again preparing to visit the cider-barrel. End of section 3. Recording by Rachel Linton, Bristol, UK.